Good morning. Uh, before we get to the message, just a word about uh, our adult Sunday school that's coming up. Some of you might have watched that and said, hmm, I wonder what political leading that's going to be. But I'll tell you what, it's, I, I know those men. They're men of God. They're men of the Word, and it's leading towards the Bible. And that's all I really want to do is, God, how do I live out the faith that you've called me to live in the day that we live with the reality that we live? It's not, there's no agenda there other than God's agenda. So I'm thankful for our leadership in our Sunday school that says this is a this is a real thing that we need help with, and um, I invite you to be part of that. If you're not part of that Sunday school class, you're allowed to join for that series and not come back. I'm giving you freedom. You might join and stick around and stay, but just know you're not stuck. Come and do that study, and then you know go back to sleeping in. But whatever, it's it's all good. Will you pray with me, Father? We thank you for your word. We thank you that. You've revealed yourself to us through human history. And we hold this Bible. It's a revelation of who you are, your character, and your nature. We've sung songs in this service already, uh, lifting up who you are. May we further understand who you are and what it means to follow you. Help us, Lord, to understand and help us to apply. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to start this message with a question to you, uh, and some of you are going to have an answer right away, because you're going to be like, well, that's an easy answer. Of course, that's the truth. Or some of you will say, no, that's not the truth. Some of you are going to give the Sunday school answer, because you grew up in church and you knew what the teacher's looking for, and others may say an initial answer and then maybe think about it a little bit further and say, well, maybe sometimes. The question is this, is God's glory... And your happiness at odds. Is God's glory and your happiness at odds? I don't know about you, but I grew up in church feeling like that was true. Maybe I wasn't the only one. I was the only one. (laughs) Growing up as a kid and then, uh, you know, it was like, here's the information you need to know, and now you just need to conform to this information. It wasn't, it wasn't about transformation. It wasn't about the Spirit illuminating God's Word. It was just information and then conform. And so I viewed like God and my relationship with Him as God wants me to live for Him, but if I live for Him, then I don't get to have any fun. Oh, now I see some heads nodding. Thank you, brethren. We're in this together. God was the no fun God and, and sin was the fun stuff that I'm not supposed to do. And so while I wanted to walk with God, I also felt like it was a duty to do so. There wasn't a whole lot of delight in that. It was, it was definitely this duty. And for some, that duty becomes such a great burden that we, well, we, maybe you, maybe this is your own story, you feel like, I don't want to carry this burden any longer. And so some who grow up in the faith who view it as this duty and, and feel like those things are at odds, end up walking away from the faith. And we know people, don't we? For others who are not ready to abandon their faith, we will say, well, you know what? I still kind of believe those things are at odds. So, so what I'll do is I'll be pretty good most of the time. And every once in a while, just a little rebellion here and there. Because I deserve this. And while there's grace for the sins of today as there was for yesterday's sins, there are also consequences. 
And that, that's really not what this sermon's about. This sermon is just kind of that, that viewpoint, that, that, that idea that those things are pulling against each other and we have to kind of be one or the other. Like our flesh wages war against God. Our heart wages war against God. Our desires against His will. I mean, those things are true. There is, they are at odds, but our joy and our happiness and His glory, are, are they really? And that's what we're going to look at today in, in the text. Uh, we are going through the book of John, but um, before we move to that text... Let me just remind you, if you could open to the book of John, chapter 12. We're moving through the book of John. Uh, we've been studying th- through this book, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. And as you turn, just a little background. You've heard this a million times, actually 26 times. Um, the book of John was written by perhaps John's closest friend, his best friend. It's a biography of Jesus' life and his work. And John writes his purpose statement, not like at the very beginning, but like you have to get through a number of chapters before he goes, you know, there's so many things that Jesus did, it can't be written down in this one book, but let me tell you what, I've written these things so that you'll believe, and in believing you'll have life. So John's purpose is that that people would believe and people would have life, and that's going to help us interpret what we're going to read today. Chapter 12, as, as as you may know, is a transitional chapter. We've been kind of anticipating this moment since we started the book of John. I said the first half of the book of John is called the book of signs. It's Jesus' uh, sign miracles, his, his, his teachings that interpret the, the things that he does. He, you know, he feeds 5,000 and he teaches that he's the bread of life. Those type of signs that are taking place. But now we see, in, in starting in chapter 12, until he's resurrected, there are no more miraculous signs. There's no more lengthy, well, no, that's not true. There's no more lengthy public you know, discourse. He's not, he's not teaching like we've seen him do for the first 11 chapters. It's a transitional chapter that helps us and sets us up for his saying farewell to the disciples, his death and his resurrection. It starts off with two events that show honor to Jesus, even though the, the, some of the details, because we've seen this throughout John, is people will do stuff and not really realize the significance of what they're saying or what they're doing. Um, but we see Jesus being honored uh, in these first two stories in, the, in, in chapter 12. And then we see later on that um, the Greeks come to him. They're looking for Jesus. We're, we're not there this week. But this is the turning point. When the Greeks come looking for Jesus, it says Jesus recognizes that now is the time. We, how many times have we heard him say, it's not the time? His mom's like, Jesus, they ran out of wine. John chapter 2, he's like, woman, it's not the time. But now it's the time. The time has come. So you'll see that in, in 12. That's where it changes. But pick it up with me, John chapter 1, John chapter 12, starting in verse 1. I am Lex Dexic, so that happens sometimes. I'm not really dyslexic. I don't, I, want, I don't want to poke fun, but I do have ADD, and that's a legit thing. Uh, you made me your pastor, so joke's on you. All right. Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus. Remember Lazarus from chapter 11 last week? He died. Jesus brought him back to life. The man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. So what we have here in this very beginning of the story, we're going to continue to read, but we'll talk about what we just read. What we read is the setting. Jesus is in Bethany, just two miles outside of Jerusalem, where he had previously been to resurrect 
to resuscitate, really, Lazarus in the last chapter, the last time we were together. Um, what we see is there's a, there's a meal. And I love the fact that, like, Martha is serving. If you're familiar with Luke chapter 10, there's a, there's a story where, where Jesus is there and he's talking and Mary's sitting at his feet and Martha's busy doing her thing. They're, they're true to their character here. Mary's about to do something that shows adoration and love, but, but Martha's busy uh, serving. But there's an interesting thing that John does here. He mentions that it's like Passover is approaching. You remember Passover? It's that, it's that celebration of when God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. It's that, that opportunity where uh, they're celebrating when God said, hey, take the slaughter a lamb and, and put the blood over the doorpost and this thing will pass over you and your children will live. And you know what I'm talking about. John's putting it in there, kind of foreshadowing, looking forward to Jesus being that Passover lamb, that one who would rescue his people. And then in verse 2, I already mentioned that we see them, them working, but in verse 3, we see, we see Mary actually anoint Jesus. How much did she use to anoint Jesus? What does your Bible say? A pint, a pound, 12 ounces. The Greek is the word litra, which is 327 grams, but that doesn't make any sense to me because I don't usually do liquids with um, weight. We do volume. Which reminds me, when Heather and I were missionaries in the Philippines, all of our recipes were, I'm sorry, all her recipes were, uh, were wrong because uh, in the Philippines, everything is done, I mean, they weren't wrong. We still brought our measuring cups. But all the recipes that, of the things you would buy, everything was done by weight. I don't know if that's the thing outside of America where we do volume, but everything, you had to weigh your flour, not measure by volume. And so Heather and I, we're adjusting, and it led to probably one of the, the greatest, certainly most infamous debates <laughs> that we've ever had on the proper way to measure uh, liquid versus solids. And I think I won that argument, but I really lost that argument. If you know what I mean, all the husbands in the house say amen. All right. The Greek word is litra, which, which, which is a certain amount of grams uh, and... Some of your translations say a pound because they're talking about a Roman pound, which is 11.5 ounces. So it's not the 16 ounces you were thinking of. And then NLT says, well, it's just 12 ounces. Let's make it easy. But when I read that, I was thinking 12 ounces of Coke. Anyways, the point is there is a lot of perfume. Anyone put on 12 ounces of perfume today? I know you didn't because we would smell you. Not only was it a lot of perfume, it was a lot of an expensive perfume. Nard. It was an extract from the what plant? The nard plant. Very good. Some botanist in the house. Where's nard grown? Do you know? Is it on the hills of Jerusalem? It's from India. This stuff is imported. There was a lot of perfume, and it was an imported perfume, and it's an expensive perfume that's, that's come, that comes from the, this, extracted from this plant. So when John says this is an expensive perfume, he's saying something far beyond what we think of when you think of expensive. an expensive perfume to you. To me, it's like five bucks. But some of you, it's hundreds of dollars, maybe thousands of dollars. I, I looked up online, like, what's the most expensive perfume? And um, a couple of them are like two or three thousand dollars. John's talking about something far more than that. We're going to see it when, when Judas objects here in a moment. Mary then wipes 
this perfume with her hair, takes her hair down, does something that isn't really culturally right in that time and place. And we'll know from the very next chapter when Jesus washes the disciples' feet that when, you, when, you, when you're in that position and you're messing with someone else's feet, that's, that's a, a self-humbling act of love and devotion. And Jesus says to his disciples, you should do this, but we see this set out well before he tells the disciples to do it by Mary's act of love and devotion. And then I love when people state the obvious thing. The very last phrase of what we just read in verse 3. The house was filled with the fragrance. You don't say, John. Thanks for that. Pick it up with me in verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, This perfume was worth a year's wages. That's an expensive perfume. It, it could have been sold and the money given to the poor. And then John gives us his, his own little commentary here. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. We'll stop there and pick it up here in a second. So you see that that 300 denarii or a year's wages, depending on what your translation is, um, the Greek says 300 denarii, but that doesn't mean anything to us who don't deal in denarii every day. I don't. So that some translations just say it's a year's wages. It's a lot of money, this thing was, which kind of goes back to, remember the, the, when Lazarus died last week? how there was visitors coming from Jerusalem, like the upper class, kind of points to Mary and Martha, and and they're pretty well off to have this kind of thing in their home to be able to sacrifice. But that's a day's wage, one denarii. Now let me ask this question. We we know the answer because John gives us his commentary. Was Judas being compassionate and pragmatic when he says, man, we could have sold this, we could have used this for good? Not really. He'd like for us to believe so. But John, in hindsight, looking back, knowing that Judas was the one who betrays Jesus, which John likes to point out a number of times, you've seen it already a number of times throughout this book, says he just wanted to steal it for himself. He was the banker for the group. He carried the money bag. Some of you know that guy that when you play Monopoly is the banker who helps himself to the bank when they're a little short. Nobody in this room would do that, I know, but you know that person out of this, outside this room. Okay, I've done it. I stole money from the Monopoly thing. Uh, this is the only time that Judas is called the thief in all of the New Testament. You know that? I mean, we know he, like, he's a backstabber, he's a traitor, he's, he, he, he betrayed Jesus, but this is the only time he's a thief, but it's not shocking to be like, oh, he's a thief too? Shocker, he sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, right? So it's not that... Big of a deal to believe that. Pick it up in verse 7. Jesus replied, Leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Jesus tells them to leave her alone, and then he speaks of his his burial. I'm not sure if the disciples totally understood uh, what Jesus was meaning in that moment, but I don't know if they were totally shocked. They're the ones who told Jesus, Man, your life's in danger. Are you going to go back? In that direction, you can't do that. So I think Jesus is looking at this as an opportunity to kind of point to his death. And I don't know if they fully grasp it. Very similar thing that we've seen all throughout John, the kind of that multi-layer meaning that we've seen from day one. It was, un- it was not uncommon for lavish expense to be paid out for funerals. I mean, I guess we pay a lot for funerals today, too. 
But back in the day, one of the costs for a funeral was, was perfume because it masked the, the, the stench. So Jesus says, like, this is, this is for my burial. This, he's pointing forward. He's, he's letting him in on what's about to take place. We see this transition in the book of John thematically. But then in verse 8, he says this, For the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Now, I don't know if in that moment where Judas was trying to be pious and like, you know, we could have sold this, we could have used it for the poor. I don't know if he was reflecting back on the law because Deuteronomy chapter 15 says the poor you're always going to have with you, so have an open hand, be generous and give. I could see Judas applying, you know, appealing to Scripture and being sneaky about it. Maybe Jesus knew exactly what Judas was kind of hinting at. And so he goes ahead and quotes it. Yeah, the poor you'll always have with you. That's true, but you'll not always have me. Now that would seem very arrogant for somebody who is an ordinary man to take priority over the poor, but Jesus is not an ordinary man. And we know that as readers of John. The people that were there in that room knew it. At least some of them knew it. They, they, they maybe didn't understand everything, but they knew he was not an ordinary man. And John, as far as he's concerned, wants his readers to understand that he is not an ordinary man. What we read in the very few verses that follow is the, the people flock to hear Jesus. They hear he's in town, and they, they come to hear him. The leaders are upset because so many people have abandoned their, them as, and, and have run after Jesus. And they even blame Lazarus for having a part in this. So they decide they want to kill Lazarus. So what you see here is the story of an anointing followed by some commentary on belief and unbelief, which is the purpose of this book, right? Now, I know you're thinking, you're like, okay, cool story, bro. <laughs> you taught us something about measurements, and you taught us something about Greek, and this was, uh, I feel like I learned something that doesn't really do anything for me. I, remember, we started this, trust me, this is not just a Bible study for Bible study's sake. There is something here that's more than just this plot twist. I mean, that, that is a big part of what chapter 12 is, but it's a... Uh, we, talk, we started this message talking about this, this duty and this burden, right? And a burden that sometimes we don't want to carry. And some of you who aren't Christians, maybe this is the very reason you're not a Christian. Because you look at us and you think we're a bunch of unhappy, burdened, duty-carrying people. And you might not be totally wrong, but you should be wrong in that. But sometimes we are. But we are mistakenly, if we are. See, remember, John's purpose is to write for people to believe. That was why he did what he did. And he starts off this thing talking about um, Mary and Judas. Belief and unbelief. And what's the response of the one who believes? adoration and worship and what's the response of the one who does not believe selfish greedy gain posturing but selfish greedy gain see mary is an example she's like a type of what a christian should be because when you believe in jesus the son of god the savior of the world the creator of the world the only one who can mediate between God and man, the, the, the great high priest. I mean, all these things, when you really see who Jesus is, 
Worship is the natural result. But we fail to worship because we don't see him clearly half the time. I would say if we really see Jesus for who he is, his glory, his greatness, it demands our worship. And I know we're thinking like, well, good. We believe. We worship. We're the Mary in this story, right? Yes and no. See, at first glance, we think, well, we're Mary. But then if you begin to actually take inventory of your own life, and I'll speak of my own life, not your life. If I begin to take inventory of my life and how I live day in and day out, minute by minute, hour by hour, I find there's probably more Judas in me than I'd like to admit. I'm not saying that I'm a thief or a traitor, but I'm saying that I probably use Jesus for my own gain more than I'd like to admit. I probably live my life not reflecting the worship that's given by Mary. I live my Christian life more closely resembling the self-interested Judas. Do you know the definition of selfishness? I looked it up. I'm not a walking dictionary. It's concerned chiefly with one's own personal profit or pleasure. Don't ask me how much percentage of my life I spend thinking about my own personal profit and pleasure. Being selfish is simply being preoccupied with yourself. When we fail to see the glory and the beauty of Jesus in those ordinary and mundane moments, like we, we, it's one thing to come in here and to worship. We're singing songs. We take a few moments to, to do this. And can I just say something about worship? Worship is far more than, um, than singing. When we call this singing time the worship time, um, we are... We are Limiting worship to singing. The singing time should be called the singing time. Would you stand and sing with us? Not just would you stand, would you, wor- would you stand and worship with us? Will you exit and worship with us? Will you do what you do day in and day out in those ordinary moments when you're and worship with us? Worship is far more than singing. And quite honestly, singing is probably the most self-gratifying part of worship, uh, the way that we worship, really. It makes us feel good. We become consumers of worship rather than consumed in worship. When we come to worship and we say, what is this, what's in it for me, rather than what is in it for you, God? Oh man, this feels good to me, versus, oh man, this hurts so good. There's a difference between a consumer view, can I leverage God for my benefit? I know you're like, wait, wait a minute, we're going we're gonna to swing it all the way back around to where we started this message, but listen, there is a difference and I'm afraid as Christians, sometimes we straddle that. And I'm not saying we're always on one side or the other. I know I'm not. There are times where I'm so self-interested. And there are times when I'm not. I, I, it's not black and white. It's a whole lot of gray. Someone who's a consumer of worship says, I can't get enough of this. It makes me feel good. And someone who's consumed in worship says, I can't give enough. It's, it's about what I could give, not what I can get. And we take that not just in a worship singing atmosphere or worship setting. We do it as we live our life. We're supposed to live lives of worship. Is that what Paul said in Romans chapter 12? That our lives are living sacrifices to the Lord. I'm a, 
I spent an inordinate amount of money on Amazon during this stay-at-home thing. Um, we're, we're not even supposed to stay at home anymore, but uh, I still spend a lot of money on Amazon. But I do read all the reviews, right? Like, like I woke up this morning and I was going to buy a lamp, but then I realized I had to do this. I mean, <laughs> Amazon's like always there, and there's always reviews, and I don't buy anything without a review because reviews are huge. Because when you're a consumer, if you're not satisfied, you're going to let people know. If we're consumers looking for God to bring us satisfaction by bringing about an end that that we have in mind, if he doesn't deliver, our reviews aren't great, are they? We become disillusioned and we abandon him. We feel like he's disappointed us or he's the one who's betrayed us. When life doesn't go the way we think it should go. Some of you know this if you've been walking with the Lord a while, but some of the most intense intimate, passionate moments of worship, not singing, but worship, as in I'm driving in my car and overwhelmed by the love and the grace and the mercy and the presence of the Lord happens in the darkest moments when we have nothing to do but look to Him. The crazy thing about looking for God to bring satisfaction is not that He doesn't bring satisfaction, it's that He does bring satisfaction, but He doesn't necessarily bring the satisfaction that we think is the satisfaction that he should bring. You get what I'm saying? Look to him for satisfaction, but don't look to him for satisfaction. They're, they're both true. There's a, a pastor and an author named John Piper. I, I, um, you've heard me mention him, kind of one of, the, one of the heroes of the faith as far as I'm concerned. He kind of popularized and coined a phrase called Christian hedonism. And he defines it as this. It's the conviction that God's ultimate goal in this world is his glory and our deepest desire to be happy are one and the same. They're not at odds. And that's where we started this message. If I have one idea I want you to walk out with, because this is the idea, and it's, 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 a, it's a quote. It's not Jerome quote, um, but it's from John. It's that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. I cannot tell you how many times this pithy little thing has popped up and reminded me that I give God glory not by my doing, but, as, but by my being and my being in love with Him and my seeing Him clearly and my response in worship. I can't tell you how many times this little pithy quote has brought me back to a place where I stop looking at everything else to bring deep satisfaction. And and it refocuses me on Him and I say, Oh yeah, Lord, You are everything. Because we can believe in Jesus, but we can still live. We can believe in Jesus like Mary, but we can live a whole lot like Judas. God is not only our supreme source of satisfaction. He is glorified when we find our satisfaction in Him. This means that the Christian life really is the pursuit of our joy in Him. This is what the psalmist said in Psalm chapter 1, verse 16, verse 11. You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. 
God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. The responses to who Jesus is, one was worship, one was giving. Overwhelmed in in that moment of adoration, satisfied just to be there with him. The other, posturing, yet hungry for their own self-interest. So what does that mean? If it's true that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him, what does that mean? It means, first of all, we fight for joy. While joy is a gift from God, it's also something that we must fight for because we don't necessarily want to find joy in Him, do we? I mean, like we do, but because it's a Sunday school answer, but yet we look to so many things. Our heart is constantly pulling us to find joy and satisfaction in everything else around us. Our hearts are conditioned to look at achievement, prestige, wealth, relationships to bring us joy. So fighting for joy means we must continually place those things in perspective. We must continually remind ourselves what really matters. We get to continually remind ourselves that our deepest satisfaction is found in Him. And when we find it in Him, boy, it brings Him glory. You know what that means? It means we don't get too up or too down based on our circumstances because God is God. And He's the one who determines our up and down, right? I mean, it's not our circumstances. Second thing I would say is fight with prayer. I stopped and I made this face um, because I like to practice what I preach. But sometimes I come up here and I preach things that I'm not really great at practicing. Not that I'm being a hair, uh, uh, not that I'm being phony. I'm just being real. I'm writing this, going, Lord, let me not just preach this. Let me live this. Fight with prayer, because if you like me view prayer as going to God with a laundry list of your desires and wants, then we're missing it. Prayer acknowledges God's existence, and you're like, duh, of course. Otherwise, you wouldn't need to pray. But when we acknowledge God's existence, we are acknowledging that there's someone greater in this universe than us. There's something more ultimate than you. Prayer bows before God's glory. It recognizes that there is a greater glory than your own or the things of this world that we give glory to. Prayer submits to God's plan. It's recognizing that the one who made the world knows better than you. Prayer confesses allegiance to God's kingdom, recognizing that there's a war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. Prayer rests in God's provision, recognizing that God is near and He's faithful to meet your need. Prayer commits to God's work, recognizing that we live between the what God has already done and what He's yet to do, and there's still work to be done, and we need His strength to do it. And if we pray and recognize those things. How would that change our life? If we go to prayer and recognize those things, not just our laundry list of what we want, but there is a God who's absolutely in control. There's a God who's far more wise. There's a kingdom that's greater than our kingdom. How would that change your day when you got up from your knees and hopped in your car 
and went to work. Now, if you're not a Christian, I, I mentioned this whole idea of, of burden. Maybe the reason why you're like, I, you know, I grew up in church, but I, I'm not so sure. I'm just here because I don't know why I'm here, but I'm here. Can I just tell you that the Christian life is not a burden of duty, but it is a life of delight in Him. You would say, I, I, would, I, would want, I, I, I don't want to go to hell. I'll take salvation, but I just don't know about the rest of this thing. God's Son dies for my sins on my behalf. I kind of understand what that means. Like, I've heard that before. But after I accept that, I have to act all weird like you people. Listen, the Bible says that our life is in Him. Colossians says our real life is hidden in Him. That we have been raised to a new life. That He transforms us and He changes us. And it's only people that have been changed where the Spirit is at work where we actually realize and recognize that there is great joy and satisfaction in Him and Him alone above all else. I'd invite you to consider what the message of Jesus means. It's an invitation to come to Him. At the end of this service, I'll have the elders come forward. They will come forward, and they'll be available to pray with you, to talk with you, to share with you. And if you have a prayer request of another type, they're also there for you. The band's going to come here in a moment. I'm going to close in prayer. But as we leave this place, may we consider the way in which we're living out our life. God, help us to be people with a clear view of who you are so that we may respond in worship and in, in, in that we find joy and you receive the glory. May this Christian life be light. It's not easy. Let there be a lightness to it, a joy, Lord. God, I pray that you would restore joy to those who feel burdened God, for those who find themselves resentful for the rule-keeping that they think that you have in store for them, God, would you illuminate your word and your truth in the life that we live in and through you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.